Welcome to the Bay Area Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to make passionate, maturing followers of Jesus from here to the nations. We hope you will be changed by this message and invite you to visit us in the greater Annapolis area. If you would like to learn more about our church and ministries, please visit our website at bayareacc.org. Well, good morning. My name is Greg St. Cyr. I have the joy of being the lead pastor here. If you're watching online, we welcome you. If you're in the chapel, our family in Easton, we welcome you. Glad you're here this morning. Sometimes God asks us to make a stand. Sometimes he asks us to stand alone. In spite of the circumstances around us, in, st- in spite of the multitudes that m- might be going one way, there are times when God asks us to trust him and to stand by ourselves. I want to take you back to oh, some 40 years now to my high school days and tell you a story. Now, you're going to have to take this by faith that back in the day, I really was a pretty good athlete. Why are you laughing? And uh, the love of my life at that time was basketball. So I was all about basketball. It's my junior year, and I was pretty good. And along comes a transfer student. His name, Jim Harris. Now, Jim was okay. He wasn't great. He was good. But Jim was a follower of Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jim was the only follower of Jesus on the team, and Jim was all in for Jesus. And Jim would do the most annoying things, like he would show up early for practice, and he would be the last one to leave the court. And what he would do is he would walk around the court on his exit, he'd pick up the balls and re-rack the balls. And we'd think, man, what is this guy? He's just sucking up to the coach. That's all he's doing, right? And you didn't want to have Jim cover you because he was like relentless. He would just always hustle. It's like, man, this is practice. Let up a little bit, Jim. And because of Jim's faith, he was the brunt of a lot of the locker room jokes. And I remember on one particular occasion, we were on the bus going to Bogalusa, Louisiana to play our, our varsity game. And some of the seniors popped in a CD, a cassette tape. No no CDs back then. This is way back. They popped in a cassette tape. And it was of a comedian whose name will be unnamed. And it was absolutely vile. I mean, the language was atrocious. It was crude and rude and immoral. And I'm sitting in my seat, and Jim is off to my right, And Jim is visibly distraught over this. Matter of fact, he has his head down. He's leaning against the seat in front of him. And I'm looking at Jim, and Jim is like, his head is rocking back and forth. He is distraught over this. And then all of a sudden, Jim Harris stands up like a lightning bolt from heaven. And he raises his hands like Moses parting the Red Sea. And he begins to shout, turn it off, coach. Turn it off, coach. Turn it off, coach. And Coach Abadie gets out of his seat and turns it off. Well, I sat there and I thought these two things. First, I thought, he is absolutely right. We had no business listening to that trash. And the other thought I had 
was that took courage. Welcome to 1 Kings chapter 18, the story of Elijah. And I love Elijah. And I'm going to tell you why. It's because in James chapter 5, verse 17, there's a little verse that says this. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, Elijah was just like you. He's just like me. And God used Elijah to do incredible things. He was a miracle worker. He's a man of faith. He's a man of prayer. He stood against the crowd. And I reason this way. God, if Elijah was just like me, then maybe you could use me like you used Elijah. And maybe he could use us the way he used Elijah. So let me tell you the backstory here. If you were here last week, we're going to pick up from last week. But in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, the Lord sends Elijah to King Ahab. King Ahab is an evil king. He's a wicked king. And he does a deplorable thing. He goes and marries Jezebel. Jezebel hails from Phoenicia. She's the princess of Phoenicia. Phoenicia is where it was the heart of the worship of Baal, a Canaanite religion. And when Ahab marries Jezebel, she brings full throttle the worship of Baal throughout Israel. And she begins to murder the prophets of Jehovah. Now, who is this Baal? This is a tablet from antiquity. And this tablet, it shows Baal. He has a helmet on, which depicts strength. He has bull's horns coming out of that helmet. In his right hand, he holds a rod. And that's to represent thunder. In his left hand, he holds... A, a lightning, and on the tail of the lightning is vegetation. Why? Because Baal is the god of the seasons. Baal is the god of rain. He's the god of sun. He is the god who causes crops to prosper. And so this is the Baal that is being worshipped. And God says to Elijah in 1 Kings 17, I want you to go to Ahab and tell him that there's going to be no more rain and no more dew for years until I say so. Now, that took courage. How do you think Ahab feels about this, right? God then sends Elijah down to Cherith, the brook Cherith, and provides miraculously for him through ravens. Then he sends them up to Zarephath, where he is provided for by a widow. And three and a half long years have gone by, and there is nothing but drought, nothing but suffering, nothing but calamity. And now, in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1 and 2, we read this. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab. And I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went and showed himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Samaria is the capital city for, of the northern tribe of Israel. So it's severe. There is drought. There is suffering. There's a lot of death. There's no vegetation. How do you think Ahab feels now 
about Elijah. Why he has sent out a hunt to find Elijah and to put him to death. He's been searching to and fro. As a matter of fact, Ahab has gone to all of the surrounding nations and he's made them swear that if they find Elijah, they will retain him until Ahab can get there. So there's no love loss here. He hates Elijah and he blames Elijah for the drought. Now with all of that, what's remarkable is that we see in Elijah immediate obedience. I don't know about you, but I think the last thing I would have wanted to do would have been to go see Ahab, who's trying to kill me. But we see immediate obedience on the part of Elijah. It doesn't matter if God says, I want you to go to the brook Cherith. I want you to go here to Zarephath. I want you to hang out here for three and a half years. I want you to go see King Ahab. Elijah sees himself as a servant of Jehovah. And so whatever Jehovah wants, midshipmen, you know what it's like to take an order, right? Whatever Jehovah wants, the answer is yes. Now, the sad thing here is that Ahab really isn't all that concerned about his people. You know what he's concerned about? He's concerned about his livestock, his animals. Why? Because he wants his army to remain strong. And the horses and the livestock haven't had enough to eat. So this is what Ahab does. He gets Obadiah. Now, who is Obadiah? Obadiah is, he is the ruler of the household of Ahab. So Ahab has put Obadiah to run his personal affairs, his household affairs. Obadiah is a godly man, not to be confused with the prophet Obadiah. This is, though, a godly man who loves the Lord and is in a position of authority. As a matter of fact, this Obadiah has hidden hundreds of the prophets of Israel He's hidden them in caves, and he's been providing bread and water for them during this drought because Jezebel is trying to kill all the prophets of Israel. And so here's what Ahab says. He says, Obadiah, we need vegetation. I want you to take some people, and you go in this direction, and you look for grass, and I'm going to go in this direction, and I'm going to look for grass. And so that's what happens. And as Obadiah begins to go, lo and behold, we see in verse 7 and 8, it says this. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. Elijah's on his way from Zarephath to Samaria, and it just so happened that they crossed paths. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, is it you, my Lord Elijah? Obadiah is shocked. What are you doing out in the open? Don't you realize that Ahab has a bounty on your head? That he's looking for you? And note the respect that Obadiah has for Elijah. Is it you, my Lord? And he answered him, it is I. Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And Obadiah says, now, Elijah, I don't think that's a very good idea because here's why. First of all, if I go to tell him that you're here and then the spirit of the Lord comes upon you and moves you to another place, when he gets here and you're not here, he's going to kill me. So that doesn't sound like a very good idea to me. This is the way Obadiah reasons. 
And then note what Elijah says, verse 15. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. Oh, Elijah is standing in the presence of the Lord. And so he's not afraid. He has courage. I don't know about you. Ahab's going to come. I haven't seen this man in three and a half years. He's blaming me for all the heartache in Israel, but that's not a problem for Elijah. I will show myself to him today. What boldness. Verse 17, three and a half years have separated them from being face to face. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? Troubler, that word comes from snake. Is it you, you snake or viper? You brood of vipers, right? That's John the Baptist, right? Is it you, you viper, you troubler? You're the one that's caused all of this trouble upon Israel? Now, please note, Elijah hadn't caused the trouble. Ahab has. And the three and a half years of drought, that was a grace. Because what God wants to do is to turn the hearts of the people away from the false God of Baal, who is the God of rain. Isn't it amazing that for three and a half years, your God can't produce rain? And so this is a judgment of God upon the people, motivated by love, that the people would turn back to the living God. Verse 18, note the boldness of Elijah. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel. He flat out denies that charge because there's no truth to it. But you have and your father's house. That charge belongs to you, Ahab, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Here's the proof that you're the troubler. You've abandoned the ways of God. You've followed the Baals. You've forgotten. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I have a friend who's actually an elder at our church, and um, he is a defense contractor for, uh, for the government, and he works in the area of IT, and he oversees two contracts In one of these contracts, he sold a warranty. So if there are any IT problems, if you pay the monthly fee, then you're covered. In another contract, there is a help desk to handle any issues that might arise. Well, all of this goes to the government. And the problem was when when issues would arrive, the warranty was not being honored. And since the warranty couldn't fix it, they had to get their problem fixed at the help desk. And then the help desk would conveniently charge the government for the services rendered that should have been covered in the warranty. And my friend realizes this. And he says, this is not right. And so he brings it to his boss and says, look what's happening here. We're double charging. Well, the boss doesn't want to hear this. Uh, He doesn't want to hear anything about that. Why? Because this is generating some $2 million of revenue to the company. 
And so finally, the boss drags his feet, drags his feet. Finally, he brings it to his boss, who brings it to his boss. And you can just imagine the chaos, all the discourse, all the tension over this. And my friend, your elder, is thrust into the middle of this. He didn't ask for this. And it's as if he's being the troubler. He's not the troubler, right? And they began to ask him questions like this. Does anybody know about this? I mean, does the government know? Have you told the government? It's like, what does that have to do with anything? Sometimes you have to stand alone. And isn't it amazing that when you stand alone, often the person who is responsible for the trouble, responsible for the consequences that everybody is experiencing, wants to blame the person who's innocent and is bringing it to the attention of others. Here is Elijah, before King Ahab, being blamed for something he is not responsible for all alone. And now in verse 19, he says this. Elijah is taking charge. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. It is time, ladies and gentlemen, for a battle of the gods. It is time to resolve this conflict once and for all. Baal versus Jehovah. So Ahab sends a message throughout all of Israel. And that message is, come to Carmel. Come to Carmel. There is going to be a showdown of the gods. And the, the winner is going to bring rain. And can't you imagine the thousands of people that come to Carmel? Here's a picture of Carmel just so you can know geographically where it is. It's up in the northern of Israel, northern part of Israel. Just north of Mount Carmel is Phoenicia. Phoenicia is the is the heart of Canaanite Baal worship. This would be a great place close to Canaan, close to, close to Phoenicia to have this battle if you are on the side of Baal. Here's um, an aerial shot of, of it. Notice here's Mount Carmel and right on the Mediterranean Sea, lots of salt water around Mount Carmel. And here is if you're approaching Carmel, it would look like this this vast mountain range. And here's a picture of me and Mary Kay last February for our very first time in Israel, right? And so there we are on Mount Carmel. It was cold. It was rainy. Not good visibility that day on Mount Carmel, but there we are. Here's a picture of what we could see from Carmel. That's what it looked like. Okay. Now, I want you to imagine the scene here. Just imagine that the word is spread throughout Israel, and thousands, tens of thousands of people are making their way to Mount Carmel. And there they are. And all of a sudden, a gasp settles as the 450 prophets of Baal come in procession and the crowd parts. Now, here they are dressed in their priestly garb, colorful outfits, right? They're wearing a necklace that has a piece of metal that was designed to reflect the sun because Baal was also the sun god. And so there they are, 450 prophets. And then you look, and here comes the king, 
the king with all of his mighty men, the king with those who serve in his court. And here is the king dressed in all his royal regale, and he's probably being carried on the shoulders in a chair by uh, his servants. And the crowd parts, and there's King Ahab. There are the 450 prophets of Baal, all very magnificent, very impressive. And then there is one man, gaunt, disheveled hair, coarsely dressed. There is Elijah. And you look over at him, and you look at the prophets of Baals, and you say, this guy, I don't know what the odds makers in Vegas are saying, but this guy doesn't have one in a hundred chance. This guy, it is hopeless. My money is on the gods of Baal. That's where my, I'm putting my money down, right there. That's the scene. Now, who takes charge at that moment? Elijah. What a bold man. Verse 21 says this. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? How long? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. How long will you limp, right? Some of us here today are limping along. We have one foot in the world, one foot with God. The word limp means to vacillate, seesaw, teeter-totter, hesitate. And what God is calling us today, this very day, is to say, like Joshua, choose you this day who you will serve. Like Jesus, no one can serve two gods. You cannot serve both God and mammon. I don't know about you, but when I first came to faith, I limped along. Really, for about six months, I limped along until God had to do some serious surgery in my life to get me to be all in. And note how the people respond. They respond, it says, the people did not answer a word. You see, we want to just be comfortable. I don't want to make a response, and so I'm not going to choose. I'm just going to be silent. And when we are silent, we're, we're making a choice. We are choosing for self. We are choosing the idol of prosperity, popularity, prestige, power, whatever it might be. And God is saying to you and me today, Stop limping. Plebes. Stop limping, plebes. Verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left, to profit, uh, left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450. Here's what Elijah says. Woe is me, for I'm all alone. No, Elijah, you've forgotten. You're not all alone. You might feel alone right there, but God has 7,000 prophets waiting in, the, waiting in the wings. And so Elijah is acknowledging that I'm standing here in front of all of these false prophets, but in reality, he's not alone. Jehovah is there with him. And then he gives this challenge. And again, it's Elijah taking the initiative. Let two bulls be given to us. 
and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. That sounds pretty good, they said. So that's the game plan. It's no problem for God to call down fire from heaven. He can cause a bush to burn and not burn up in front of Moses. He can cause a pillar of fire to lead the children of Israel through the wilderness. He can send down tongues of fire on the day of Pentecost. It's no problem for God. Verse 26. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered and they limped around the altar that they had made. Round and round the altar. This is a giant altar now that's been erected. 450 prophets of Baal circling around, calling out, Oh, Baal, bring down fire from heaven. And they do this for some three hours. And now it's noon. And at noon, the sun would be at its zenith. And you would expect this would be the easiest time, the right time for Baal to send fire from heaven. And so Elijah chimes in in verse 27. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Maybe Baal is on a journey. Maybe he's daydreaming. Maybe he's using the bathroom. Maybe he's asleep and you just need to cry out louder. And this infuriates the prophets of Baal. And so in verse 28 and 29, it reads like this. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So here's what's happening. They are crying out to their God. They are praying to their God. Now, they picture them dressed in their prophet's outfit, bright colors. They would have very long hair that would come down to here. And what they would do is they would bend over like this so that their hair would brush against the ground. And then they would begin to sway like this. And then collectively, all 450 would begin to circle around the altar like this. And they would call out in wild shrieks, Baal, send down fire. Oh, Baal, hear us, hear us. And as one hour goes to the next hour, it becomes louder until finally they pull out swords. They pull out their lances and they begin to cut themselves. And the scripture says, and the blood gushed out. And there they are. All the demons of hell are at work in this very moment. 
as they shriek out and call to the God of Baal, and there is no answer. It's 3 p.m., and now it's time for Elijah. Verse 28 and 29, verses uh, 30 and 30 and following says this. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord. Come near, he says, and there is an altar. Apparently, there was an altar on Mount Carmel that one of the true followers of Jehovah had built out of stone. And it's been torn down by Jezebel. And so, Elijah now rebuilds the altar. He dedicates the altar to the Lord. And I'm wondering this morning if there aren't some of us here that need to have the altar of our heart rebuilt, reconsecrated to the Lord God. And he goes on, it says, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. For the glory of the Lord, in the authority of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain seas of seed, many, many gallons. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offerings and on the wood. And he said... Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. This is absolutely incredible. You wonder, well, where does he get the water? Well, one thing, they're right by the Mediterranean Sea. Not good for drinking, but perfectly fine for dousing a sacrifice. And so there, 12 times, 12 pitchers, 12 barrels of water. And there you have a bull, wood, an altar, and a trench all filled up, overflowing with water. And now the stage is absolutely set for Jehovah to act. All is required is one more thing by Elijah. And we're going to talk about that next week (laughs) in detail, but we'll finish today. Don't worry. What Elijah is about to do is to pray. He is going to stand in the authority of God's word, claim God's word, and pray a prayer of faith that moves the hand of God to act. Verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He is reminding God that God is a covenant-keeping God. 
Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. This is the posture that you and need to take, you and I need to take, the posture of a servant that simply obeys immediately the word that God gives. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Vindicate yourself, Lord God Almighty. Bring glory to yourself, and turn the hearts of the people back to you. Now, I want you to visualize this scene. Come with me to Carmel. There are the 450 disheveled, exhausted, bleeding prophets, many of them sitting down or lying in the dust. They are absolutely defeated. And there is King Ahab. He is disheartened. He is confused. He thought this was a slam dunk. They had the home court advantage. And his, his team is down and out. And there is Elijah, standing in the midst of tens of thousands of people, all the prophets of Baal, all the authority of King Ahab, praying a mighty prayer of faith. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stone and the dust and licked up the water. That was in the trench. Don't you wish you had been there? I mean, there's nothing left. Everything's consumed. There's no more sacrifice. There's no more wood. There's no more stone. There's no more water. That's been licked up. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. Our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. Verse 39, and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. He always was, always is, he always will be. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Now, this might sound a bit extreme. God is a holy God. God is a God of justice. God had been sending grace upon the prophets of Baal and all of Israel for three and a half years by withholding rain so that the hearts of the people would turn back, and yet they're unrepentant and they're being led by these 450 prophets of Baal. And so God decides to use the surgical knife and remove them from Israel. And that, dear ones, is also a grace. It is a grace for the people. And I look at this story and I say, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He's just like you 
and me with all of our insecurities, with all of our doubts, with all of our inadequacies, and yet he takes the posture of a servant. He stands upon the word of God. He obeys immediately. He prays, and God does a miracle. So there are three things I want to wrap with. Three lessons that I want us to see here. The first one is this. Cherith and Zarephath are God's training ground. God needed to take Elijah to the brook Cherith, and he was there for a year as the ravens fed him. And then he had to go to Zarephath, and for two and a half years, he was provided for by a widow, and God was doing a deeper work at Camp Cherith and the school of Zarephath because Elijah was not ready for Carmel. He was not ready for the confrontation with the 450 prophets of Baal and King Ahab. God had to do a deeper work in Elijah's life. And so if today you're at Cherith, you're at Zarephath, then we just say, thank you, Lord, because you are doing a a deep work and you are using these trials, you are using this drought to make me more like Jesus because you have awesome things ahead of me and you're getting me ready for them. The second thing is this. Elijah knew this. One plus God is always a majority. You can tweet that out. One plus God is always a majority. God's math is not our math. You put God on any side of the equation, put God there, and you have just put infinity on that side of the equation. Infinite power, infinite love, infinite wisdom, infinite peace, One plus God is always a majority. And so the task before us is to not look at, not focus on the prophets of Baal, not focus on the drought, not focus on Ahab, but to focus on God, the self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal, infinite, immutable God. Nothing is impossible for this God. And one plus God is always a majority. And the final thing that he knew was this. Standing alone, he was never alone. And standing alone, you and I are never alone. God tells Joshua, who's shaking in his boots, or sandals, I guess, be strong and courageous, for the Lord your God is with you. Jesus says, I am with you even to the end of the age. And so it might not feel Like God is there, you might think that you're alone, but you're never alone. God has never, ever left one of his beloved alone. Actually, that's not true. There is one person that was left alone. On Mount Carmel a sacrifice was laid on an altar that was consumed by God. Years later, 800 years later, there would be another sacrifice laid on wood, a wooden cross. And for three hours, 
there would be darkness over the land. And during those three hours, God took your sin debt. He took my sin debt, and he placed it on the sinless Son of God. And at the end of those three hours, do you remember what Jesus called out? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was all alone. He was all alone bearing our sin debt so that you and I would never have to be alone. So that you and I could always say, God is with me. He's Jehovah God. And one plus God is always a majority. So I don't care what the Carmel might look like, what the obstacles might be in front of me. With God, I'm not alone. And with God, I have all the resources of heaven and earth to accomplish the will of God. So I need not be afraid. Jim Harris stood up like Moses and cried out, Turn it off, coach. He must have known. He must have known that he was not alone. And he must have known that one plus God is a majority. So, Father, I pray for each of us. I pray for those of us who are here that are limping. I pray that a decision right now would be made. If the Lord is God, then follow him. I pray that everyone here would acknowledge the lordship of Jesus and commit to following, trusting him. And Father, for whatever Mount Carmel lies ahead or whatever we might be experiencing now, thank you that we are in the majority because you are with us and we're never alone. Use us today and this week to be like Elijah. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you all. Have an awesome week.